Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. There we go. Good to see you. If you are visiting with us or this is your very first time, I, I, I too wanted to just say I'm glad that you're here. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. As Pastor Nathan mentioned, we are very excited for our vacation Bible school happening tomorrow. And there has been, as he mentioned, there has been a lot of hours and upon hours upon hours of people just pouring in. They've been here um, at the church building all week for like the last couple weeks, just prepping things. And so um, a lot of preparation has gone into it, but we would just ask that you would continue just to pray now. It's, uh, we just pray that the Lord would just bless and that the, the kids would have fun. I mean, that's not the goal, but like we don't want to make church boring for kids. We want this to be a good experience. But then also that the gospel would be made clear and that the seeds of the word of God would be planted and, and watered and all of that. And so we're excited. Pray, pray for Hayden and Zach and the team. Um, I did want to make one more kind of brief mention that is, we're really, um, as a pastoral staff, and word's going to start getting out, but we're really excited that this year, I think the Lord's leading us to do another Church in the Park, the last Sunday in August, and um, down at Gladstone. We did a, uh, 2019, we did a Max Patterson Park, and it was just one of my favorite days of my whole time being just a part of this church. It was just, it was, it was so fun just being in the community, doing what we're doing, just preaching the word and worshiping together and inviting our neighbors who don't know Jesus, like, hey, come join us. Come see what church is all about. So gear up. That's the last Sunday of August that we're going to be doing that. But um, the Lord, for whatever reason, has just given our church just like good favor with the city of Gladstone, and which is, which is amazing. And, and they're going to have like a Gladstone City Festival the first weekend of August. I think it's a Friday, Saturday event. I think it's called Gladstone City Festival. And um, they've just kind of like offered like, hey, anything you guys want to do or be a part of, we would love to partner with you guys. And so we're just like, what a great opportunity, not only to care and like serve our city, but also to start like promoting and inviting people there to our church in the park. And so the ideas are rolling in and you're going to hear more details coming up in the, in the next few weeks about um, the Gladstone City Festival, but also church in the park. And we're just really saying, God, you want to... Um, You've opened the doors here in Gladstone. We want to proclaim the gospel. We want to be a good gospel light here to our city. And we're just going to walk through those doors. Holly and I were talking this morning. I'm like, the doors are open. I'm like, I, I said, I don't want to just walk through them. I just want to like blaze through them. I'm like, hey, I, as long as it's not like a brick wall, that would hurt. But like the doors are open. Let's, let's just see what God is going to want to do. Like that's, that's what we want to do. A side note to this, this is not written down at all, but last night, Mary and I were watching a documentary uh, called Jesus, the Jesus Music, I think is what it's called, Jesus Music. And it's a, it's a um, documentary 
recapping the history of contemporary Christian music as we know it. And it began in the Jesus movement in the 19, late 1960s and early 70s with Love Song and all those bands. And it was just really neat to just hear it. And then it, and it kind of just brought it up to like modern days where it's at now. And Michael W. Smith was a huge part of this and Greg Laurie. And, um, but one of the things that really stood out to me, um, again, it's, uh, with Pastor Chuck down at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa is that... Um, they didn't know at the time that there was a movement of the Holy Spirit going. They didn't know that. They didn't call it a revival in the 70s. This was just every day, Lord, we're just showing up. We're hungry for you, right? So they didn't call it a revival there. But what I love about Pastor Chuck and Calvary, and there was churches on the East Coast and Texas and all of that that were catching wind of this, but they just set their sails in such a way that when the Holy Spirit blew through Calvary Chapel, they were ready. They were ready to go where the Lord was leading and they were open to what the Lord wanted to do. And look, we look back and we're just like amazed. Calvary Chapel alone just has like, what, two, over 2,000 churches. I mean, and then you have the vineyard movement, all of that, that spur off of Calvary Chapel. Like, again, this isn't about Calvary. It's just, what does the Lord want to do? And so we were watching this late last night and I'm just like, Lord, it just was stirring my heart. Lord, what is it that you want to do Today, here in Portland, I want to be ready for that. I don't want to maybe have my ideas of what you might want to do and preconceived ideas. Lord, I just want to be like this. And I pray that for our church, that we would just be like this. Lord, work in us and then through us. Amen? Amen. So that, that's enough about Church in the Park and Gladstone City Fest. But I'm just excited to see. I think that's where the Lord is leading us. But if you would, we're here to study God's Word and look at God's Word. Uh, would you stand with me as we read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, beginning in verse one, says, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already to defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers, verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You may be seated. As we've been seeing in our study thus far, the Apostle Paul is addressing this church that he had planted, but they had lost their way. Sin had crept into the church and it ruined everything. 
Paul, as the founding pastor, their spiritual father, felt the need, the necessary need to address them on many issues because the issues were many. And last week, we found out that there were some major sin issues going on in the church. And we saw that there was a man who was having a sexual affair with his stepmother. And again, that sin was blatant, it was unrepentant, and it was happening on the regular. And Paul wrote to the church and said, guys, I hear this is happening with someone within the church. This is horrible. This is so bad that even the Gentiles, right? Even the pagans, those outside of the church, the Corinthians, who are known for their sexual idolatry and just horrible sin nature, they wouldn't even do what you're doing. And But the worst thing about this was that the church turned a blind eye to this man's sin. The Corinthian church was so proud and puffed up by their acceptance of this man. They, they just thought, man, this was something good to be said about us, that we were tolerant towards sin. That way, hey, look, at, we're just so loving and just caring for him and we're okay. And in their arrogance, they were totally fine with sin being left unchecked. And we know that any time that sin is left unchecked, it begins to destroy. And we saw last week, the Apostle Paul took issue with that. He tells the church, you guys have become so arrogant. You should be mourning over this sin, not celebrating it. They were celebrating this guy's sin. He says, you should be weeping over the sin of your brother or your sister in Christ. And then we saw, we took some time last week to talk about church discipline. Like, what do you do? How does the church, all of us, how do we respond to someone who sins in the church? When a member of the church is caught in sin, how do we respond? And we learned that the biggest deciding factor is the word repentance, right? Whether they are repentant or unrepentant. And that word repent just means to turn around them to basically stop the direction you're heading in your life towards destruction and stop at the tracks, turn around and pursue Jesus. And as I said last week, to be repentant means to have an ongoing posture that acknowledges sin for what it is and seeks forgiveness, restoration, and growth in Christ. That's what it means to be repentant. And so to be unrepentant means that you, you don't acknowledge sin for what it is, right? You continue in it. And the question we asked last week was not, do we sin or do we not sin? No, no, no. Of course we all sin. The question is, are we repentant or unrepentant? And the problem that we saw in chapter 5 was this man's unrepentant sin. And that led to Paul's solution that we must remove him from the church. It's time to exercise what we call church discipline. And then we looked at Matthew 18. If we're going to talk about church discipline, we have to talk about Jesus because Jesus laid out the steps to take in regards to church discipline. And the first step we looked at is when a brother or sister is in sin or has sinned against you, is you go to them, right? One on one. This is a private family matter. You don't first go to the pastors and say, this guy sinned against me. Can you deal with it, right? That's not, that's not the first step. But you go to them humbly, privately, out of love, and you address them. And the second step, if that doesn't work, is to take a few people with you to address them on it. Again, out of a place of love and concern. Hey, we love you. 
this is a pattern we've seen in your life. We are inviting you to walk in repentance and forgiveness. And we want to do that with you. Again, out of love. And, and if that person repents, great, amazing. But Jesus said there's a last step here. If he doesn't listen to you and he doesn't listen to, to a group of you, you take it to the church. You would take it to the pastors or, or the elders to try to sort it out. Again, with the same heart of wanting to win over your brother or your sister who is caught in sin and who's unrepentant in their sin. But then Jesus said, if he still though, if he doesn't listen to the, the church, the leaders of this church, for the sake of the health of the church and the spiritual health of the person, you've got to remove him from, from your fellowship. You've got to kick him out. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you, if just for the sake of context of that, uh, to go back on the podcast and listen to that. But to remind you, there was four ways we looked at last week um, when, we, when it comes to church discipline. I just wanted to briefly, they're going to be on the screen. Um, the context of church discipline is family. And that's, that is the context. The process of church discipline is gradual. This is not a, hey, they sin and boom, we're just going from zero to 100. This is a gradual, slow process. The motivation we looked at is for church discipline is love, that we love, genuine love. This is not fault finding. This is not arrogant. This is not proud. This is love, love for one another. And then lastly, the goal of church discipline. We can never, never, never lose this. The goal is restoration. That is the goal. And so when Paul wrote to this church about removing this man from the fellowship, he's talking about the end of the process, not the beginning. Again, it wasn't to punish this man, but it was so that restoration could be made possible. And like I said last week, removing someone from the church is always the last case scenario. It is nothing that we're trying to run and, and do. This is the worst case scenario. But if it gets to that place, we must, as we saw, lovingly follow God's word in doing it. Amen? And the reason why we do that is because we must, as Paul encouraged and exhorted this church, we have to take sin serious. Sin is like a cancer to the body. Your sin not only affects you. My sin does not just affect me, but it affects many others. Sin has long-reaching arms. You think about it. You think about a father married maybe 20 years, has five children, and he decides one day to go have an extramarital affair. Does that sin just affect him and the gal? No. That sin affects the kids. That sin affects his marriage, that if, maybe if the other person is married, that it affects their marriage and their family, their friendships, their family, if it destroys their family. Sin has long-reaching arms. Sin destroys. It destroys you. And when sin is left unchecked, it will destroy each other too. And that's what we see happening in the church in Corinth. They had unrepentant sin happening. And it's destroying the church. And Paul says, guys, we must take sin seriously. Listen, addressing someone's sin is never easy, is it? Never. It's never if it's easy for you, you probably shouldn't do it, okay? Like, you're like, man, I, I mean, if it excites you. I mean, if it's easy, maybe you're just mature in your discipleship process to Jesus. Like, that's great. But like, it, it, to, for me at least, it's never easy, nor is it fun. But it's necessary and it's important. Why? so that the person who is caught in sin may be given the opportunity to walk in repentance and experience forgiveness. That's why we do it. But another reason why we address sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters is for the sake of the church, 
the protection of the church, the purity of the church. Paul said in verse 6 of chapter 5 that, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? It's the, and the warning was that, that if you don't take sin serious and deal with it, that though it may start small and, and seem very insignificant, that it will quickly spread and ruin the whole lump of dough, the whole church. And then thinking through our passage this morning, I would add another reason why we would take sin seriously, and that is for the sake of our witness to the world. The church in Corinth had lost their witness. They were so arrogant and smug, and rather than drawing people to Jesus, they were repelling people from Jesus. And can I say just something real quick? If we stop taking sin seriously and we let it go unchecked in our lives and the lives of our church, we will do a disservice to the watching world. We will do a dis disservice. Listen, by not addressing sin in each other, again, lovingly, graciously, Galatians says, in the spirit of gentleness, by not addressing sin in each other, nor responding or repenting of sin in our own lives, it removes the amazing, beautiful, redemptive message of the gospel from ever being preached in our lives. Again, we're not casting an image of perfection, but of process and repentance. Amen? So what will the world see when they look at our lives? What do they look at when they look at your life? Do they, do they see a hypocrite? Do they just see someone trying to just show them that pretending that they're, you know, they're fine in their sin or, or hiding sin? Or when they look at your life, will they see someone who is just a broken church member walking in repentance on the daily, walking in the love, the grace, the forgiveness of Jesus, because that's what this world needs to see. They don't need to see your image of perfection. They need to see you broken and just humble before the Lord. But Corinth, Corinth, the church of Corinth didn't do that. They were struggling. And Paul writes them this letter to correct them. And he says, take unrepentant sin seriously, specifically in the area of sexual sin. You guys have sin happening in your church. Don't celebrate it. Weep over it. Why? For the sake of the person, for the sake of the church, but also for the sake of the watching world. And then that brings us to chapter six, verse one. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So here's the situation. Two believers within the church have some kind of disagreement. Uh, the NASB calls it here a case. The NIV calls it a dispute. And the ESV, uh, the English Standard Version, calls it a, a grievance. But it's a technical term in the Greek. It just means lawsuit. It's a legal complaint. If you look down at verse 8, the word defraud there means to cheat or to rob someone out of something. And so there's a good chance that this was maybe a bad business deal, you know, or a shady business deal or just um, bad business practice. Maybe property deal gone, gone wrong. We don't know exactly the situation. But this person, he, they've been wronged in the church. They've been wronged. They've sought counsel and they decided to to take this person to civil court. Now, the civil courts in the Roman Empire were public affairs. 
Every case was out in the open. And when I mean out in the open, most of these buildings were open squares. It was a busy marketplace. Um, People just gathered, walking, passing by day by day. A lot of people listening uh, to these hearings. And so if you had your case against someone, you would have your appointed day, your court hearing, and you would go and stand before the judge and you would take your case to the judge or the magistrate. But again, not only are you doing it in front of the judge, but you're presenting, in essence, your case before everybody, anyone and everyone who happened to walk by and wanted to listen in. And it's in this context that Paul is writing. Now, I want to say something right off the bat before we continue. Is Paul here in chapter 6 is talking about and addressing civil disputes and sins and cases. He's not talking about crime, and it's important that we know the difference. Because if someone professes to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus and commits a crime towards you, especially if it's a serious crime, you have an obligation to go to the authorities. That's what they're there for, for for your protection and the protection of other people. We all have an obligation to do that. That's what the authorities are, are there for. But in civil matters, he's talking, That's it's a completely different situation. So this is not a criminal case. Nor is Paul taking issue with Christians using law, right? Paul clearly said in Romans that that the government is gifted by God with the authority to punish wrongdoing. Paul himself, we see many times in the book of Acts, would use law or legal defense or legal standing uh, to defend his own ministry in life. So again, the issue is not criminal, it's civil. But what Paul is astounded at and is rebuking here in chapter six is that a Christian would have a grievance, an issue, a disagreement, a case against another Christian. And rather than seeking reconciliation like Jesus commanded to in Matthew 18, privately, one-on-one, and then, that, and then follow the steps afterwards. Rather than seeking reconciliation among themselves and within the council of the church, they have gone to the Roman government, the Roman judges or magistrates. Again, look at verse one. Does any of you, when he has a case against his number, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Paul says, does he dare? Do you dare to do this? In other words, Paul just can't even comprehend the report that he's hearing about the church. And he says, are you so audacious to take a private matter and turn it into a public spectacle like this? To take it before the unrighteous and not before the saints or the church. Now, when he calls the Roman judicial system unrighteous here, he's not necessarily referring to them being corrupt morally, or bad practices of law, though there probably were those, just like there are in our day. But Paul is simply referring to them as unbelievers, as non-Christians. Why would you take this outside of the household of God? This is a family issue. Now, you've got to understand, again, the culture of Paul's day, because much like in our day, filing a lawsuit was very, very common in Corinth. They had lawsuits for everything. They were a Sue happy culture. And as I said before, because the hearings were in the town square, the public square, um, this became a source of just entertainment. This is how often it would happen, a source of entertainment uh, for the culture and for the people walking by. They would, they would sit or they would stand and they would listen in and they would be amused by what they would hear, suing uh, one another and taking someone again to the, to the court 
would just be for the pleasure of the people, just watching. People being entertained by the court system. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Fun fact, this is, I was like, how am I ever going to fit this one into a sermon? And here we go. One of my favorite facts of Hollywood, you ready for this? Pastor Josh knows this because I, I shared it with him a couple months ago. I, I'm always fascinated by like celebrities' net worth. Like, what are they worth? Like, how much money do they have? You know, like, we all contribute to that if we watch the movies. Like, what do they have? Anyways, I, I like, why was George Clooney and all these Brad Pitt or whoever? Then I finally came to my senses. I'm like, how about Judge Judy? <laughs> do you know Judge Judy is worth almost $500 million? 500, more than any other like actor and celebrity that I could find. Judge Judy. For why? Why? entertaining people with the courts. How many of you remember in the mid-90s, the O.J. Simpson trials? Do you remember that they cut away from the NBA championship series? They broke away so they can bring the verdict live on national television. That's how much it was generating viewers. Or even more recent, if you're like me and my wife, you found yourself stuck, sucked into the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. Very entertaining. There's something entertaining about it. I find it fascinating. Anytime we're, we're driving in Southern California and you're on the freeway, I swear, it's like every like seven, like one mile, maybe one block. I don't know. There's billboards. And it's like always, there's, it's not advertising events. This is always advertising a lawyer. Like they're just like, hey, did you get in a car accident? You know, call this guy. You're getting divorced, call this guy. Like I, I kid you not, you go down I-5 in Southern California, do, like lawyer, 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 lawyer. We just live in a Sioux happy culture. There's a lawyer and a lawsuit for everything. And that's what the culture of Corinth was like. And it seems as if these Corinthian believers had been so used to, it was just part of their DNA of arguing and disputing and taking one another to court before they were saved. And now, if you remember, because they're carnal in their thinking, because they, the world has a greater influence on them than they're having on the world, they're reverting back to their former nature. They're, they're, they're reverting back to who they were before they gave their life to Jesus. And they're acting like the unsaved here. In verse two, he says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Paul says, do you not know? Notice that. He says it three times in this whole section, but two times here. But it brings to mind some of the truths that this church did know. They were taught this. And maybe they, they, maybe they forgot or maybe they're just living in such blatant sin that they're disregarding it altogether. But he asked this question, do you not know that the, that the saints will judge the world? Now, now, when he's talking about saints here, he's not talking about perfect people, right? Don't picture Mother Teresa or something like that you might deem perfect or a saintly in your mind. But he's referring to every single believer in Jesus. Did you not know that we, you and I, if we, we have given our lives to Jesus, that we are saints? That we are saints in Jesus? Now, as we saw last week, if you remember, you're here. Jesus is the one who will judge the world, right? But the Bible tells us that we are joint heirs with him. We're one in Christ. And the implication to that is that we're going to be participating in that judgment with him. Isn't that a radical thing to think about? 
That when the Lord comes and he sets up his kingdom and we're going to be part of that kingdom, along with all of the believers from the past, ruling and reigning with him, participating in that judgment. Revelation 2 says this. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Now this is an incredible privilege and responsibility. Like when I think about this, when I was thinking about this this week, I'm like, my mind can't even fathom what this is going to be like. You're like, what, what is that going to be like? Us ruling and reigning and, and judging. Like, I don't know. I, all I know is what the Bible has to say about this. I think of 2 Timothy 2. It says, if we endure, we'll also reign with him. And we will join with Jesus in the judgment of the world. But he says, not just in the world, but in verse 3, that we're going to judge angels. Now, I believe he's talking about fallen angels here. He's talking about the hosts of angels that rebelled against God in from heaven. They were thrown out of heaven. And when, he, and when we come back with the Lord, we're going to judge them as well. I think of our study in Jude, where we, where we learn that the angels are being reserved in chains. They're awaiting judgment, these fallen angels. And so again, Jesus, no doubt, the figure of judgment, but because of who we are in Christ, we will join in with that judgment over the world and over fallen angel. And so Paul is challenging this church here. And he's speaking to them about what we're going to be doing in the future. He's reminding them in essence of who they are in the Lord and what awaits them. But the point that Paul is making here is this. If one day we're gonna be with the Lord, and we're going to be judging the world with him. Don't you think that you can handle some of these smaller issues here and now between one another? Now, again, Paul, Paul's talking about believers with believers. He's not talking about you and the world and you and like your coworker who's taking you to court. Like, no, no, he's not talking about that at all. He's talking about the church. Again, this is family. He says at the end of verse three, how much more matters of this life? The phrase, how much more, I think, emphasizes an almost sarcastic tone and like contrast. Paul's arguing that in the future, we're going to be responsible for not only judging the world, but angels. And he says, and you can't find two people to solve this dispute between you guys. Come on. Come on, guys. Look at verse four. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brethren goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Wow. Paul is asking this church if or when they find themselves in a situation where they're at odds with another person in the church, when they're at a disagreement with someone in the church, another believer, he asks, is this not a family issue? Do you not have a wise enough person in your super Christian church to handle this? Paul says, is it so that there's just not one wise man in your midst? And I think the irony of this is really funny because if you remember 1 Corinthians chapter four, the believers there in Corinth were so proud of their wisdom. You guys remember that in chapter four? I'm gonna read it out of the New Living, verse, uh, verse 10 of chapter four. This is our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim, 
This is the Apostle Paul like drilling them. You claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so powerful. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. But here in chapter six, Paul points out to them that their actions and what you're doing in your life, how you're living, you're showing us that there isn't anyone wise in your midst. He's kind of just showing them that they're the fool here. And to boil it all down, Paul is saying, you have all of this wisdom in your midst and you can't find one person to solve this matter. Shame on you. Shame on you. And he says again in verse six, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? You see, to me, this was Paul's biggest issue. All of their sinful actions in suing one another was happening on display, front and center before an unbelieving world. You see, even the unbelieving Jews dealt with their civil cases in their own synagogues. But here we see the believers, they're taking their problems before the council of the unjust or the unbelieving world. And this only weakened their testimony of the gospel. Let me ask you, what kind of testimony was this church showing to the pagan Corinthian world? This church was loudly proclaiming that there isn't much difference between the church and the culture. If what the world sees in here is no different from what they see out there, what are we offering this world? Why in the world would they ever want to step foot inside our church if we don't preach a different message, if we don't abide by different ethic systems? Like we live for the kingdom of God, right? We don't live for the kingdom of America. We don't live for the, the Roman Empire. I think of Jesus over and over again, told his disciples, I think of John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. The very next breath, he says this, by this, by your love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another if you have a love for one another. Let me ask you, when the world looks at your life, and when I say the world, I say the unbelieving world, and believe me, they are watching you. You might not know it, they are watching you. What are they seeing in your life? What is the testimony of your life? When your neighbor looks at your marriage between you and your spouse, are they seeing a version of marriage that's built on humility, love, grace, forgiveness? Or are they just seeing one that represents a sitcom marriage? Are we truly acting like ambassadors of the kingdom of God to our world? Am I acting like an ambassador of the kingdom of God to this world? Are we having a greater influence on the world or is the world having a greater influence on us? It's the question we've been asking, but it's a question we must ask on a daily basis. Listen, you and I have an amazing opportunity to reflect the love of Christ in how we treat one another in the body of Christ. And how we deal with these types of issues will speak volumes to the world around us that's watching. If they see us attacking our own, why would they ever want to come to the church and give their life to Jesus? That's what they do out in the world. 
So how they say, when we did our beloved series, it was a kind of a makeshift series through 1 John, looking at the love of Christ and how we respond with it. Uh, I remember in that saying, it's like, we, like, don't be fooled that evangelism can't begin with us just loving each other well. Like, don't tell me evangelism cannot, be, cannot happen with me just loving Paul well and Paul loving me well. And they watching that, they're like, whoa, you guys are completely different. You guys, this world would tell you you shouldn't be friends and you shouldn't have anything in common. But man, they just see our relationship. They're like, whoa, what brings them together? It's Jesus Christ and our love for one another. Look at verse seven. Actually then, it is already defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Paul says, because you have done this, you might have won the battle, but you've lost the war. Because the one who really wins is Satan himself here. You might win your lawsuit. You wanna take your brother in Christ to court. You might get your money back. You might get your property back, whatever the case is. You might feel vindicated, but at what cost? Yes, you might win physically, but what about spiritually? Was what you did in taking that person to court for your glory and your praise, or was it done to glory and honor Jesus Christ? And Paul asked them a very heart-checking question here. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Oh, but that's not American. <laughs> like we don't, we don't, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't just take blows and not fight back. Like we fight for what's ours and our rights, right? Let me ask, are your rights more important than your witness? Am I more concerned about being cheated than for God's glory and the good of his kingdom being seen in my life? The New Living Translation puts verse seven this way. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourself be cheated? Paul's saying, it would be better for you to take the loss and lose some money than for the name of Jesus to be dragged through the mud. And the truth is this. We can be very right about something and very wrong with how we're being right. You guys know that? We can be very right about something and yet very wrong in how we're being right. And Paul says, why not just let it go? For the sake of Jesus, why not just drop it and give it to the Lord? I think of Matthew chapter five, the words of Jesus. He says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other to him as also. If anyone wants to sue you and take, you, take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? Don't let the wrongs done to you by someone else be your own wrong yourself. Don't let the sin of others. Pastor Doug has always taught me this like, and shared this with me. Don't let other people's sin be your sin too. Don't let the selfishness of someone else lead you to respond selfishly. Just let it go. And it's, it's one of the hardest things, if we're honest, to do. When someone has wronged us, our flesh wants to get even. It wants to fight back, pay back. We want to wrong where they're wrong back, you know, where we've been wronged. We want to be right. And Paul says, you better just kill your pride. Isn't that the issue is pride? Selfishness. You hurt me. 
and I love me. Paul says, let it go. Lay down your hurts, then to hurt the cause of Christ. Warren Wearsby said this, the Corinthians who were going to court were disgracing the name of the Lord and the church just as much as the man who was guilty of incest and they needed to be disciplined. It was just as bad as the man we looked at last week. But the church of Corinth was not giving up their rights, Paul says in verse eight. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and you defraud. You do this even to your own brethren, verse nine. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. No doubt whoever Paul is calling out here at the church of Corinth is, is figuring to himself, well, sure, I'm not doing my brother good, but it's not that bad. You know, it's not, it's not like that. I'm not like sleeping with my stepmom. Like, you know, it's not that bad. And here Paul tells him just how bad it really is. He says, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. And listen, there's a lot of people walking around this world who are deceived. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're walking around, you're living your life however you want it and you think you're still gonna inherit the kingdom of God. Let me tell you, it is not so. Now here's, not, here, here's, here's what he's not saying. Paul is not saying that if you stumble in sin and you make a mistake in these areas, you're going to hell. He's writing you off. That's not what he's saying. Paul is again talking about people who profess Christ with their lips and yet they're living a life dominated by sin, living in unrepentant sin. And he says, don't be fooled by this. Don't be deceived because the reality is the gospel doesn't just save you, it changes you. Amen? And if your life doesn't look any different five years from now, from the day that you gave your life to Jesus, you should truly be wondering, am I really saved? Did I fully give my life to Jesus? Or was that just a profession of my lips? And Paul lays out this list of those who would practice such a lifestyle. They're selfish sins. These are self-indulgent sins. And he says that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul has a little come to Jesus moment with them when he says, such were some of you. I love that word, were. Past tense. Paul is saying that this is who you used to be. You used to be like this, but now you're not. Now you're like this. And Paul is reminding the believers that because they're in Christ, that they should act like it. Listen, this is who you are. I think of his second letter to the Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. Church, isn't that good news? When we gave our lives to Jesus, we were born anew in Christ. And one of my favorite verses, he says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you were washed. Are you grateful for that? Because before you and I became Christians, before we gave our life to Jesus, we were dirty. We were rotten. We were dead. We were dead, man, dead man's bones. We were smelly. And he took the filth of this world and he removed it as far as the east is from the west. 
Isaiah 118, it says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And he says, you were sanctified. You're being purified. That word sanctified means you're being set apart for holy service. This is what he wants to do in you. He wants to set you apart to be used for the glory of God. He's conforming you into the image of his son. And then he says, you were justified. You were giving a new standing before God. Do you know what that word justified means? Just as if I'd never sinned. Do you love that? We have been justified. When we came to Jesus, we were justified. And when the Father looks down on us, He no longer sees us in our mistakes. He doesn't see our failures. He sees us as righteous with the perfection of Jesus, just as if you and I had done nothing wrong and just as if we had always done everything right. Aren't you grateful for that? And because of this amazing standing that we have, Paul is saying, we didn't deserve any of this. This washing, you didn't deserve it. This sanctifying, you didn't deserve it. This justifying, you didn't deserve it. He forgave you. He forgave me when we wronged him. He didn't hold our offenses against us. He didn't hold it uh, above us. The Bible says that we were, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This was a working of his grace. God's unmerited favor. That's what we've been given. We've received this. And I think of Jesus, man, if anyone's been wronged, it was Jesus. And I think of Philippians 2, he says, have this attitude in you that was also in Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but this is Jesus, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made found in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me ask you, because God has been so good and so gracious to you, why would you hold that same gift of grace to others who you're in conflict with? Ephesians 4.31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you because he hasn't held your record of wrongdoing against you, why would we ever hold a record of wrongdoing done to us by others? We wrong God in every way and he responded with forgiveness, love, and grace. He did not treat us as our sins deserved. Are you grateful for that? Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us are like sheep who have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That is Jesus. And he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. That's the point I want to bring out there. Like a lamb that was going before the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And my prayer is that we would respond with the same love, grace, and forgiveness to those around us that would hurt us and wrong us. 
Colossians chapter three. It says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. I think of the words Pastor Doug spoke many years ago. He says, transformed lives should translate into transformed living. Has your life been transformed by the grace of God? My prayer is that we would reflect that in our lives. And Paul here would say, give up the old ways of doing things. Give up the carnality. Give up the worldly wisdom. Remember who you are. Remember where you came from and let that overflow into how you respond to the world around you. Amen? Three things for us to remember as we close our time is remember that we're family. We cannot forget that, that we are family. This is not just a cold institution, a country club. This is family matter. And if both parties are walking in grace and humility, listen, there is nothing that can't be solved. Secondly, remember this morning what Jesus has done for you. He has given you so much grace. He has given me so much grace and we ought to give that same grace to everyone around us. And lastly, remember this, that the world is watching. What we do and how we treat each other is going to be the testimony that this world sees. And let me ask you, will they see the gospel in your life? Will they see the gospel? It's a powerful message. It's the only message that can truly save. Will they see it in your life and how you care for each other? Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.